Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Recall the confession today is from Proverbs chapter 27, verses 15 and 16. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. At first take, these verses look like a no-brainer. This passage is a warning to women and wives not to nag, right? It's pretty clear you want to drive your husband away or even further than become a nag. Like most Proverbs, this is one with, as a sword and it has two edges. It warns against unfaithful habits that women can form in marriage. But what does a proverb say to us who might, be, who might not be high-handed in this sin? We go to weddings. We remember our own weddings where we pledge our love, our honor, our faithfulness, and submission to one another under Christ. We have visions of building something new, fruitful homes where joy abounds because we are so caught by that wonder that we were given a mate to love and one who loves us fiercely. So how can it be that these same two individuals may find themselves, ourselves, in just a few years in situations where she is frustrated, overwhelmed, and heavy of heart? The very real burdens of life weigh and bear us down. The sweet eyes which he lovingly looked on his bride with have turned steely with avoidance and confusion and hurt in the inability to fix things. This verse speaks with both edges, to men and to women. Men first. Our wives do not live in a vacuum. Ask yourself and ask the Lord to show you, has my wife increasingly struggled with nagging? Is it completely her sin? Or have there been particular needs which she has, which I have not prioritized. It may not come naturally for me to fix that leaky faucet, but have I procrastinated in seeing that it gets taken care of? It may not come naturally for me to converse with her about the things that are on her heart, her hopes, her fears, and her longings. Could my selfishness and my selfish preferences be contributing to the lack of trust which she has increasingly evidenced. Ladies, remember the man you married? He may have seemed so completely just right for you at the time. But remember, he, like you, is dust. You are required to respect him, but show him respect by taking your frustrations with something he has done or not done, that conversation he botched or failed to initiate, that item you'd hoped he'd look into and help you with, but he hasn't gotten to, that word of love and attention that he's overlooked. Take these hurts, these wrongs, these oversights and shortcomings first to the Lord. Develop the discipline of first uh, coming to him to give you, and asking, seeking him to give you direction and peace. And from that foundation, 
The Lord will help you discuss with your husband your needs, your disappointments, and quandaries about the deep things and the shallow things as a respectful helpmate. No doubt there is a woman who simply through laziness and lack of discipline has become what the proverb describes as a nag with the constant dripping of her quarrelsomeness. Her husband looks innocent because he says and does little of consequence or of controversy, but typically both parties are complicit. The nagger needs to see the folly of her habit and that, not is, that it is not only unfruitful, but it is destructive in her home and in her most intimate relationships, and it is, it is not a faithful witness. The husband needs to lead in an understanding way, first to uncover his own neglect that may have created a climate for distrust and distress, and secondarily to lovingly admonish, to help his dearly beloved to overcome the nagging as well as the doubt and fear that may be behind it. This is a faithful witness of how Christ cares for his church, his bride. Remember, dear saints, you have been called to Christ and are equipped and supported in him. Marriage was given to us as a gift from him. We are to be fruitful and faithful in it. We need each other's help to soldier through life. We need each other to help raise a family in the generations which follow us. We need each other to help gain comfort and insight into the changes in the trials that come to us from within and from without. We are called to live well so we can finish well. As husbands and wives, let's take care of each other physically, spiritually, emotionally, and faithfully as our lot is appointed. This reminds us of our inability to do so without the cleansing and forgiveness of Christ. Please kneel where you are if you're willing come before you this day and we seek to serve you. We acknowledge that you are our judge. You are our God. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You rule from heaven. And we are your humble subjects. Lord, we pray that you will renew us in worship this morning. Restore us into right relationship with you. Wash us clean from our sin. Consecrate us. Sanctify us. Purify us with your word. Father, we ask that your truth may soak into our hearts. Into our souls. So that we might embrace it. And live our lives in the light of it. Father, make us to be suitable vessels for your glory and for your service. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I say something like judge, what comes to mind? When we think of judges, we tend to think of something like our judicial system the local county or circuit 
courts or perhaps the Supreme Court. Long black robes, big wooden edifice or desk that the judge sits behind, gavels and juries. It's a courtroom with bailiff and guards, plaintiff and defendant, attorneys and all. The judge's role is, to the best of his or her ability, to ensure that the law of the land is satisfied, that innocent parties are protected, and that offended parties receive remuneration, and that guilty parties are held accountable. Ultimately, the work of the judge is to apply the law and to establish justice. That's what comes to mind when we think of judges. But this picture is a far cry from the kind of thing we're talking about in the Apostles' Creed when we speak of Jesus Christ as the enthroned and eternal judge who will come to judge the living and the dead. This is because the work of human judges is merely temporal. It happens in this world, in time. They deal with a very small slice of reality, things on which the law of the land has something to say. And after that, they deal with interpretations of reality. They themselves are fallen. They're not perfect. They deal with imperfect evidence, imperfect witnesses, and imperfect people. They cannot see hearts. They cannot know motives. They cannot have a perfect understanding or perception of everything that actually happened or came to pass in the case. Further, they have no right or ability to address the ultimate issues of life. In the court of humanity, where God and his appointed judge sit... All men are in the dock. That's a British term for saying they're the ones on trial. They're the ones who are the defendants. This would include the judges and attorneys and plaintiffs too in the picture that we have of the courtroom. In God's ultimate judgment, all men are held accountable Individually, every man, woman, and child who ever came into existence will stand before the perfect and holy creator and be judged whether or not they are righteous or wicked according to his holy and perfect standard. And our Lord, Jesus Christ, is the particular man who fills that office. He is the one judge. It is he who will make the declaration for eternal life Or pronounce the judgment of eternal damnation. This is in our creed. And if you'll notice the wording in the creed. This particular phrase is different than the rest of the creed. The rest of the creed says. Well I believe this and I believe that. Declarations of things that we think are true. That the Bible has revealed to us. In this we make an assertion. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We are declaring in the creed that Jesus has the right and the authority and the power. And we believe that he will do this. 
This is a declaration of what Jesus will do. After that, the creed goes back to more statements of faith. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, and so on. It's in our creed and for good reason. It's there because this is what the Bible teaches. And it's also there because it, what, it's what makes the man, our Lord, Jesus Christ, so ultimate, personally and intimately ultimate to every human being who ever existed on the planet. He is the one with whom we have to do. He is the one who we will all ultimately answer to. Now, I've regularly said in this series that the work of Jesus Christ is the work of redemption. His goal, what he came to do was to redeem men. The promised judgment in the creed is the declaration of the fulfillment of this promised redemption. We declare that Jesus will come to judge because it's something we want to happen. We're excited about it. It's through the resurrection and ascension and the promises in scripture that we know that Jesus will return. God sent him. He came. We have the story of the gospels, what he did, what he said. Because God raised him from the dead and because he went to be in God's presence in heaven, we know that what he said was true. And what he said is that he's coming back. And because he's coming back, and he's coming back to reward his people, we know that faith in him is, is worthwhile. This is, this is our motivation for declaring the truth to the world. Because Jesus will reward his people. Faith in him is something that we should be excited about. It's the only reasonable course of action. Because all men will answer to him. So we're going to be reading a lot of scripture today because we need to turn to the scriptures to, to see that his return and judgment are certain. First, Jesus taught himself that he would receive glory and power from God the Father. In Matthew 16, verse 27, we read, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Again, in Matthew 25, Jesus clarifies this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And he goes on to speak about how he was thirsty and naked. And they say, When were you hungry? When did we do this? He says, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. And again, they, they asked, When did we see you hungry? He says, Inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did not do it unto me. 
And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. So Jesus declares this in his teaching. It's in all of the synoptic gospels. The angels at the ascension affirmed Jesus' glory and his return. Remember, he went up into heaven. And the the angel said, he's going to return just the same way that he went up. Acts 1, verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus doesn't forego his power or his involvement on the earth when he ascends into heaven. He's still reigning. He still has power. The Bible is clear that Jesus will come and that, um, that he's the man who God has set as the judge of all men. Both Peter and Paul also make Jesus' coming judgment a central fact and a culmination of their sermons. Peter in Acts chapter 10, he, he finishes his sermon to Cornelius. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living And the dead. And Paul also in the Areopagus to Athens. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day. On which he will judge the world in righteousness. By the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all. By raising him from the dead. Jesus is the judge. And he is coming with power. Now, the Bible also says some other interesting things about Jesus coming back. One thing that it says is that it's, his, his return is imminent. It's, it's coming soon. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 16, right after what he said about how he will come with glory with his angels. He says this, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. James chapter 5, he's giving all these exhortations, but he lands on this. He says, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In Revelation 1 verse 7, John again, he says, behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. So Jesus is coming. This is certain. He's coming with power and glory to judge and give reward. And he's coming soon. But no one knows when. We cannot make predictions about when. Jesus in in Mark 13. But the day... But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Again, in Matthew 24. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, Jesus, at the ascension, speaking to his disciples. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Peter, in 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 5. 
5. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now these passages are very important for us to grasp onto and understand. Because we as human beings like to make predictions. And many have failed to heed these passages. I did a cursory look on the Wikipedia article that lists these sorts of things. There are 41 failed predictions about Christ's second return. Going all the way back to the year 500. So what we, what we can decipher, what we should decipher from these passages is right on the surface. That his judgment, his coming, and his return is not able for us to, be de- to de- de- decode it. It's not for us to know. But there's more that we can learn from these passages. We should be able to discern that his coming is ongoing. It's immediate and ongoing. When he says in Matthew 16 that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, do we interpret that as a lie? Did Jesus lie? No, we don't. But all who were standing there died a long time ago. So did Jesus return? Did he come in his kingdom with power on the clouds? Well, obviously, yes, he had to in some form or fashion. In Mark 13, Jesus says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. You see, what Jesus' return is, what his coming is, is his establishment of his people. He's he's drawing in all the elect from the farthest corners of the earth. And this is an immediate thing that is occurring in his judgment. And it's an ongoing thing that will happen until the end of time. This is an aspect of his ruling in heaven at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing there? Well, he's answering prayer. He's vindicating the righteous. He's relieving the oppressed. How is he doing that? Through his body. Through his church. He's working out the kingdom of God in the earth. That is a judge's job. It's the application of the law to his people. Here and now, Jesus is judging. Now there is another sense in which Jesus is coming. Another sense in which he he is judging. It is the culmination of all of this work that he's currently doing. But just as we participate in eternal life already, right now, we also participate in his righteousness and justice right now. It's still a shadow. Not every tear has been wiped away yet. But Jesus is reigning now. And so we hold on to Romans 8.38 dearly with tenacity. We, we believe that all things happen to come together for good because Jesus is reigning and judging. 
He has a purpose in every minute detail that happens. All things are in his hands. And he's ruling, he's judging for our benefit currently, at present. What we also know is that we cannot know. It's impossible for us to predict. It is necessarily unknown and unknowable to us what his judgment specifically looks like. What day and time, what hour and minute he is coming. It is not for us to know times or seasons. It happens as, as, as a thief comes in the night, in the secret, in the dark. We do not know and we don't need to know. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know what hour and day Jesus is coming back in the flesh for the final judgment. And we don't need to know because we do know what we do need to know. That Jesus is coming back. And because he is coming back, and because he is the judge, we know that we must be ready. We must be prepared. We must watch and be prepared. This means vigilance on our part. Constant faithfulness. Running the race. Serving God. Day in and day out. Never dropping our guard and giving in to our fallen nature. To the devil. To the world. No, Jesus is king. We're not following you. We're not following them. We're not following our own, the dictates of our own hearts. We're following Jesus. We're doing what we believe and what we think is right. We're committing ourselves to run this race with endurance. And even if it means suffering and pain or death, we know He has an answer for that. And He will make it all right in the end. But the Bible is crystal clear that Jesus is coming back. And He is the supreme judge. So now let's take a moment to consider the nature of his judgment. His judgment is absolute. There's no dilly-dallying around his judgment. There's no walk-arounds. There's no skipping past. He makes a determination. He sees perfectly and clearly and wholly. And he decides this is what justice is. And there's no appeal. Past God. There's no appeal past Jesus Christ. Now, there's a certain amount of reasonable trepidation that comes with the idea of being judged. Right? Nobody likes to be judged. Nobody wants to be judged. Nobody wants to be sued. Nobody wants to be attacked. Nobody wants to be weighed in the balances and found wanting. We all know that we fall short. And that's why this trepidation makes sense. God's law, his, his, his standard is perfection, absolute, holy perfection. So it makes sense that you might have some timidity when it comes to this, this, this topic. Especially when we're talking about the kind of judgment we're talking about. Because it's ultimate, because it's eternal, because it involves... 
everything about us down to the nitty-grittiest detail in our souls. He knows our hearts. He sees what our hands do. He knows our motives, and he sees our actual actions. He sees outright crimes that we might have committed, but he also sees the impure thoughts that just flip through our minds. Now, it's a little cliche when you hear one gunslinger or fighter in a movie say something like, prepare to meet your maker, right? That's a little cliche. But if you think about what those words actually mean and where they actually come from, to prepare to meet the face of God in heaven and his appointed judge, the cliche speaks truth. That's exactly what happens to all men when they die. And ultimately at the, at the, the final resurrection. We should be nervous about this. So let's inquire for a moment. What is the judgment like? And that will inform what it should mean for us. What it should mean to us. Jesus' judgment is absolutely perfect. It's absolutely holy and absolutely righteous. He spent some time in John chapter 5 describing the mechanics of his justice. Starting in verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is not in it for himself. He's humbly applying God's will. He only does what the Father does. Also, Jesus' purpose in coming, his purpose in judgment, is to give life. He has authority to judge because the Father wants to honor him, but he came to give life. Starting at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus describes God's personality to us. He says the Father desires to give life, and he gives the Son the power to give life. The son judges so that he might give life. That's why he judges. And again, he he goes on. Jesus came to give life, and the life that he gives removes condemnation. Verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. You see this? Judgment is the fruition of our faith. It's, it's the, the, the righting of wrongs. Jesus judges men because he is the son of man. And he will judge authoritatively. Verses 26 through 29. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. 
those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And then Jesus concludes this this text here uh, on judgment with his absolute righteousness. I can of of myself do nothing. He repeats that. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So the nature of Jesus' judgment is is this. This is what what I I want you to, to wrap your heads around. Is that Jesus came to bring life, and God made him judge so that he might establish life for us. He judges. He judges and he sends some people to eternal life, and he sends some people to eternal condemnation. But the condemnation that they, they have is not from Jesus bringing in new condemnation. It's Jesus' affirmation. That they've broken the law that they've known all along from the very beginning. He, of himself he does nothing. As he here he judges. He judges perfectly. He judges righteously because he's not self-motivated but father-motivated. He's seeking to honor the father. He's seeking to do the will of the father. In chapter 12 Jesus speaks on judgment again. And he, he reiterates his inclination towards Salvation, verse 47. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, but I did, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. This isn't a surprise. He simply comes to establish and uphold what God has always taught. Verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. In order to make, put, pull, pull all this together, what this means is that there will be no question whatsoever about the justice that comes at the last day. Jesus is simply speaking God's words after him. Moses prophesied that he would do that back in Deuteronomy. That God would put his words into his servant's mouth. In Christ, all lies and confusion are swept utterly away. In his judgments, light and truth shine brightly. And there's no shadow of wickedness or injustice. In Christ, we see... The, the mirror opposite to our brokenness and fallenness, to our sin. We're judged because we are encountering His holiness and His perfection. Now John later gives us a vi- his vision of that judgment in the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, and in, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. At the second coming, Jesus' decision is final and absolute. The wicked are cast out. Forever. 
Well, this is pretty heavy stuff. I'm not self-deceived about this. I realize what I'm saying here is hard news. And at this point, we might begin to wonder, what's so good about, what's so good about all this? Where's the silver lining? What's the good news? What's the gospel? We are believers, and we have no reason to fear this judgment. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He, he wouldn't have had to come to con- condemn the world. Do you realize that? The world was condemned from the fall. God could have wiped us out in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, take a bite, gone, done. That would have been just. He could have done it in the flood. He was already wiping out the world. He could have just wiped out the rest of us. He certainly would not have had to come down and become a man and suffer in order to judge us. No. Jesus came to reveal to us God's love. To display for us his desire to save us. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, God has shown his light into the world. And we see it and we rejoice. We love him. We love Jesus. We stand with him. In standing with him, we condemn our own sin. We embrace his death on the cross because that's what we deserved. And that's what he accomplished for us. His judgment is true. His judgment is right. Amen. We hear his judgment and we say, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. You're right. But I'm a sinner that's covered by the blood of your grace. I embrace the grace that you have come to give us at the cross. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. We are set free from the condemnation of his judgment. Further on in Romans 8. God is for us. He justifies us. Jesus is the judge, but he's the judge who died for us and intercedes on our behalf. He loves us. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Those who are judged are already judged. We've already undergone the condemnation. We've repented of our sin. We've turned from it. We've confessed it. And we've affirmed God's righteousness in calling it out. Jesus doesn't judge. The law judges. Jesus affirms the truth of the law, but he sets us free from the condemnation of the law. He came to redeem us from the law and its condemnation, provided we repent and we believe. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he lifts you up. He sets you on high. 
And his intention for us as believers is glory and restoration and peace and vindication. Romans, I mean Revelation 21, right after the great white throne judgment. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That is the vision of glory and holiness that God has for you and for me. To take away our pain and suffering. Now, if, if you've been following along in your bulletins, in the outlines that I put there, you'll see that we're not very far into this service message. Um, and that's true, because there's way more here than I can cover in one week. So we'll be coming back to Christ's judgment next week, because this means some very important things for us. It's, it truly is a blessing to us. And it has, it has some real motivational power for us. For now, we're going to be wrapping it up here after the second point in your outlines. But I do have some, some, some closing remarks for you. First, I want you all to consider the great truth of this, this statement in our creed. Hold on to the deep comfort that comes from the fact that Jesus will bring all things right. There is no injustice that will stand. If, if, you, if you're hurt, if you're offended, if, if you've been burned, if, if, if you suffer persecution, if... If you, if you suffer illness and pain, God sees it. He sees your heart and he will vindicate you if you will go through this with faith. There's no injustice that will send. You have no enemy or attacker who's going to get away with it, ultimately. Because Jesus is the sovereign judge who sees perfectly and judges absolutely rightly, we can trust him with our lives. All things do work together for our good. Next, don't fret. Don't worry. Don't freak out about Christ's return. I know I am probably preaching to the choir on this one. I, this isn't a, a big issue in our circles. But... Know that we do know all that we need to know about Jesus' return. He's told us that He is Lord, and we have plenty of things to work on in the meantime. So get busy doing the work of the kingdom. Feed the hungry. Give drinks to the thirsty. Clothe the naked. Visit the sick and the imprisoned. Declare the gospel to the world. Repent of sin. Turn away from wickedness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. In short, be prepared. Get ready for Christ's return. Don't get caught when it's unexpected. He's returning. We don't know when. 
We don't know when we're going to die. And that's when our story is done here. But this life is a race and it's a fight. We're in this for the long haul and it requires constant preparedness, vigilance, and watching so that we might be found faithful. And finally, as far as Christ's return goes, the coming judgment is good news. It's great news. You are in Christ, so don't fear His judgment. Embrace His coming. Amen, come Lord Jesus. That's how the Bible ends. Embrace His coming. Embrace His declaration of your holiness. You're covered by His grace. You believe He is the Son of God. You believe He is the judge of heaven and earth. Because you believe, know that you're saved. Turn from your sin. Follow Him. There's no one else to follow. God's plan for you is to wipe away every tear and take away all the pain and sorrow that we endure in this life. So, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you set our Lord as our vindicator, our judge. We pray that you would seal this truth deep in our hearts and souls and mind. Allow us to embrace it and declare it. To not be ashamed of it or or forgetful of it. Keep us from being pushed around by the trials and sufferings of life. The false doctrines and teachings of men. Lord, instead establish us in the knowledge of your truth. That you are God and we are your people. Give us strength to declare your gospel. Give us faithfulness that we might be found ready and prepared. That we might hear your judgment of well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, give us a longing to see the establishment of your kingdom in the coming our Lord. Father, we now conclude as Right after the great white throne judgment in Revelation, um, we see the church, the bride of Christ, is presented to him in beauty and perfection. Spotless and glorious. This communion table is the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a feast in which we celebrate the joining together of Christ and His bride. Here we remember the great sacrifice that He accomplished in order to purchase us. And here we anticipate and yearn for His returning to us to purify and completely sanctify us. We also remember and grasp on to the promise of the gospel. That our sins are forgiven because by His grace and the power of His Spirit, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He saved us. So that when He comes, He will declare us righteous and holy to God. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and His body, the church. We do not eat of it lightly, for we know that He will judge 
all hypocrisy and wickedness with absolute justice. But we do eat and drink the bread and wine as a declaration of our faith. We confess our sins and we rest in the sovereign mercy of God and Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.